Hello and welcome to The Forge. My name is James and this is the place where I teach verse by verse through the Bible. I am a retired U.S. Air Force Master Sergeant who went on to serve the Lord's Church as an assistant pastor, worship leader, and youth pastor. During my time in these roles, I finished seminary and I hold a Master of Arts in Biblical Studies and a Master of Divinity. I've been involved in ministry in some form for over 25 years, and it is my hope that this podcast will be a blessing to you as I teach from God's Word, the Bible. Forge exists to serve those whom the Holy Spirit is calling into a relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. This is done through biblical teaching so that individuals understand God's forgiveness, live in its reality, and overcome the wounds caused by bondage to sin. I will always hold to the truth found in scriptures, and a summary of my doctrinal statement is worded perfectly in the five solas of the Reformation. I believe Christians experience gratefulness and renewed purpose as they are encouraged by the words of life, which spring from the Bible. I pray that this podcast plays a role in God's ongoing work in your life. Don't forget to look in the show notes for links to the podcast website where you can leave a donation or leave a voice message with questions. I will be collecting questions for a future Q&A podcast. Also, please leave a review on whatever platform you are using. That and telling others about this podcast are the two biggest things you can do for me. Now grab your Bible and get ready for a verse-by-verse study. May God bless the reading and the hearing of His Word. I'm glad to meet you back here once again at the Forge. Today we will be covering Genesis 38. Just 12 more chapters and we will be done with our study in Genesis. So let me take this opportunity to remind you that if there's a book of the Bible that you'd like to study, just let me know through the link in the show notes. And I would also like to remind you that you can support this podcast by making a donation. You can share this podcast with others. And you can also support me by giving me a five-star review. You can do any or all of those things. It would be greatly appreciated. And with that said, let's begin our Bible reading for this episode. We will be in Genesis chapter 38. So hear now the words of the true God. Genesis 38, beginning at verse 1. It came to pass... At that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite, whose name was Hira. And Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua. And he married her and went in to her. So she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. And she conceived yet again and bore a son and called his name Shelah. He was at Chezeb when she bore him. Then Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, 
and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord killed him. And Judah said to Onan, Go in to your brother's wife and marry her, and raise up an heir to your brother. But Onan knew that the heir would not be his. And it came to pass when he went into his brother's wife that he emitted on the ground, lest he should give an heir to his brother. And the thing which he did displeased the Lord, therefore he killed him also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till my son Shelah is grown. For he said, Lest he also die like his brothers. And Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. Now in the process of time, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died. And Judah was comforted and went up to his sheep shearers at Timnah. He and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And it was told to Tamar, saying, Look, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear sheep. So she took off her widow's garments, covered herself with a veil, wrapped herself, and sat in an open place which was on the way to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown, and she was not given to him as a wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot because she had covered her face. Then he turned to her by the way and said, Please let me come into you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. So she said, What will you give me that you will come into me? And he said, I will send a young goat from the flock. So she said, Will you give me a pledge till you send it? And then he said, What pledge shall I give you? So she said, Your signet and cord and your staff that is in your hand. Then he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. So she arose and went away, and laid aside her veil, and put on the garments of her widowhood. And Judah sent the young goat by the hand of his friend, the Adulamite, to receive his pledge from the woman's hand, but he did not find her. Then he asked the men of that place, saying, Where is the harlot who was openly by the roadside? And they said, There was no harlot in this place. So he returned to Judah and said, I cannot find her. Also the men of the place said, There was no harlot in this place. Then Judah said, Let her take them for herself, lest we be shamed. For I sent this young goat, and you have not found her. And it came to pass about three months after that Judah was told, saying, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has played the harlot. Furthermore, she is with child by harlotry. So Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. When she was brought out, she sent to her father-in-law, saying, By the man to whom these belong, I am with child. And she said, Please determine who these are, the signet and cord and staff. So Judah acknowledged them and said, She has been more righteous than I, because I did not give her to Shelah, my son. And he never knew her again. Now it came to pass... At the time for giving birth, that behold, twins were in her womb. And so it was, when she was giving birth, that the one put out his hand, and the midwife took a scarlet thread and bound it on his hand, saying, 
This one came out first. And it happened as he drew back his hand that his brother came out unexpectedly. And she said, how did you break through this breach be upon you? Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out who had the scarlet thread on his hand. And his name was called Zerah. Well, what an interesting thing happens here in verses 1 through 5. Notice the very first words of this chapter. It came to pass at that time. Why is this phrase here? It's important because this phrase ties Judah's leaving town to the sale of his brother Joseph into slavery. Let's consider these first five verses. Judah did not completely forget about his family duties. And later on, we're going to see that he goes with his brothers into Egypt for grain. But here we see that he moved away. And he moved away at the time that they sold Joseph into slavery. It's possible that he moved away because of guilt and shame and his father's grief. Imagine being around the brothers all the time. And you know that they know that you know (laughs) that something isn't right. And I wonder things like this. You know, had, had Jacob told Judah of his role as the leader of the tribe where the Messiah would come from? Is Judah trying to run away from the covenant family, wanting to have offspring elsewhere? Or is he, in fact, trying to help God out and get get the tribe started so that the Messiah will come? We don't know. But there's one thing for sure that we know about all of this, and that is it's not a good family, healthy relationship that's going on here. And I like to quote R.C. Sproul and This is just one sentence that he says in the Reformation Study Bible, which has a commentary that was edited by R.C. Sproul. And this is what he says about this. The family further degenerates by disloyalty. The family further degenerates by disloyalty. And as we read chapter 38 here, you may have noticed it's kind of like a detour. We left off in the last chapter with the enslavement of Joseph in Egypt, and we're even introduced to Potiphar. So why do you think we're all of a sudden talking about Judah right in the middle of Joseph's story? Well, I'm glad you asked. (laughs) Judah's genealogy is important because, as I've said before, this is the tribe of the promised Redeemer. Now, as we study this chapter, we're going to see that Judah marries outside the nation of Israel. Marriage with the Canaanites was already forbidden because these were not God's covenant people. Now, remember, Abraham had insisted that Isaac not marry a Canaanite. And then, of course, Isaac and Rebekah, they objected to Esau's marriage to foreign women. And this is one reason why Jacob had Leah and Rachel as wives, because they were not Canaanites. They were from within the family, distant relations. So later on in Israel's history, according to Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 and verse 3, it will actually become law that Israel 
is not to intermarry with Canaanites and other foreigners. It should not be done. God warned his people that the foreign wives would bring in false gods and idolatry. And if you know the history of Israel, you know this is exactly what happened. And we'll see that God literally kills the sons from Judah's union with who is called the daughter of Shua. We really don't know her name. In 1 Chronicles chapter 2, verse 3, uh, the name of Judah's wife is given as Bathshua, but Bathshua just means the daughter of Shua. So despite what Judah does, God's sovereignty over Judah's offspring is seen in this. We see the preservation of the messianic line. It's preserved by God. So that by the end of verse 5, we have Judah married to the daughter of Shua, a Canaanite. And she has three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. And we learn from this that these Canaanites, apparently, they do not seem to be interested in the one true God of Jacob. In any event, we should probably think of chapter 38 as kind of uh, parenthetical. It's like a parenthesis. It's like an insert into the story, really, of Joseph. But we are taking a little bit of a look here at the life of Judah. And it's here because of Judah's importance in the line of the Messiah. And obviously here in chapter 38, um, enough time passes for Judah's sons to grow into young adulthood. And this all happens while Judah, or I'm sorry, while Joseph is away in slavery. Now, to be fair, while Judah did move away, if you look at a map, it was only about eight miles to a very small town of Adullam. So let's look at the influences in Judah's life as we consider this move away and this marriage to a Canaanite. You see, Laban would be Judah's grandfather on his mother's side. And what do we know about Laban's people? Well, we know that they were far gone into idolatry because you will remember that when Jacob left, um, someone (laughs) took Laban's idols. And you remember all that went down with that. And what does that tell us? Well, it tells us that Laban worshipped false gods. And then we have Esau. And as we just pointed out, Esau's family was mixed in with Canaanite stock. And from all the way back at the very beginning, you have Ishmael's family, and they were the same. So why am I bringing this to your attention? I'm bringing it to your attention because it's time for yet another James opinion. That's right, a famous J-O. And here's my J-O. Perhaps Judah was trusting God for a wife which could be taught of the true living God. And I'd like to think that this is what was going on, but we don't know. And again, it's just my opinion. Judah marries the daughter of Shua in hopes that he can convince her to worship the one true God of Israel. So there's no indication that he asked his father, nor did he ask her father. It's perhaps... Judah 
already knew that his father, Jacob, would not approve of this marriage. So in any case, he should have been much more cautious because he should have protected his line because this will be the line from where the Messiah comes. John Calvin writes in his commentary on Genesis, quote, it was wrong for Judah to entangle himself in a forbidden relationship. The Lord cursed the offspring of this marriage. Judah's sin only increased the burden on Jacob. Now a wicked grandson was born to him through Judah, of whose sin he was not ignorant. So dear Christian, you need to be careful who you consider for marriage. As a Christian, you're part of a new covenant. And who's going to come from your line? Obviously, the Savior's not going to come from your line, but hopefully you'll have a legacy of Christians that come from your line. Perhaps you have heard of the phrase missionary dating. Can I tell you something? There's no such thing as missionary dating. If you're getting romantically involved with someone who does not know and does not live for Christ, then what you're actually communicating to them and to others and to everyone around who's watching this unfold, you're communicating that your love for them is greater than your love for Christ. And the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1, it says, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath the righteousness with the unrighteousness? Think about that, friends. And it says, what communion hath light with darkness? Friends, if you're walking in the light, you have no business getting involved in a romantic relationship with someone who's walking in darkness. So it does look like from Scripture that the daughter of Shua rejected God. She was not converted by Judah. And the Bible doesn't say it, but let's look at what the Bible does say about their union. We see that two of her sons were wicked in the sight of God, and we know specifically what Onan did. And God killed them. So whatever their wickedness was, God purged them from the line of Judah. So the sons of Judah and the daughter of Shua were Ur, which means watcher. Now I want you to notice something here. There's an implication that happens here because Judah named Ur. But then you see the next son comes along and his name is Onan. But who named Onan? The mother did, the daughter of Shua. Interesting. Don't want to read too much into it, but I think it implies an influence that she was having in the family because she also names the third son. And we don't know the meaning of his name, but we do know there's an interesting fact about Shelah. He was born in a town called Chezeb. And Chezeb means deceptive. Can you imagine that? What if you were born in a town, <laughs> a town called deceptive? You know, people ask, 
where were you born? Oh, I was born in deceptive or I was born in deception. And I just point this out because you know by now that I believe that every word of the Bible is placed there for a reason. And I find this to be a kind of emphasis on who is naming the sons and specifically where this one son was born. He was born in a town called or translated deceptive. And it just kind of underlines the whole uh, fact, the whole atmosphere here around Jacob's family. It was one thing about them all that we can see. They were deceptive. The whole family is being deceptive. Jacob has been deceptive. Now his sons have been deceptive. And deception and lies just seem to permeate this family. So let's move on to verses 6 through 10. We do indeed find an interesting situation here. Judah picks a wife for his son, Ur, and her name is Tamar. And we need to keep an eye on Tamar because she's going to play a very important role here. Now, why do you think Judah picked a wife for his son when he had not allowed Jacob to pick his own wife? And here's what you've got to understand about the ancients. It was not like today where you just go out and play the field and you kind of figure it out on your own um, and you date and you find someone and hopefully everything works out. No, it wasn't that way. Back then, the marriage of two young adults was a covenant between the parents of those young adults. Your mother and father picked your husband or your wife. And it could be that Judah noticed the error of his own decision not to wait on his father's choice. And he didn't want her to make the same mistake. Was Judah looking for a good influence upon his son? Possibly. And he found Tamar. Was Judah now beginning to see the reality of the nation? The nation which would come from Jacob, his own father. We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us these things, but I like to ask these kinds of questions because it tends to help me see the lives of these people. You know, I've encouraged you, put yourself in the story. Think about how you would feel. Think about your emotions, hopes, and fears, and dreams, and all the rest, because these were real humans who had real human experience, experiences. So a very interesting thing occurs with Judah's choice in Tamar. It's her line that will produce the Messiah. And what we see here is that she does do some very questionable things, but so does Judah. So there's enough blame to go around, <laughs> believe me. And once again, we see God using less than perfect people for his plan. And this episode, you're in for a real treat because I'm going to give you a second James opinion. You know, this has got to be some kind of a record. You're getting two James opinions in one episode. So here it is. Here's the J-O. Ur was not interested in being a spiritual leader. He was not interested in worshiping the one true and living God. And since he had no choice in the marriage, he may have even resented the whole thing. Remember, he would have been young. He would have been in his teens. And he may not have wanted to settle down. He may have wanted to play the field a little more, especially being influenced by 
Canaanite religions of that time, which emphasized fertility worship. And there was a tremendous amount of sexual activity that went on in this kind of worship. In so many ways, I think of American society and how we are really no different than the Canaanite false gods of the ancient world. You know, it seems we are obsessed in our culture with sex. And if I could say one thing to the young people of today, I would say this. You are more than sex. Your sexuality is only one portion of your whole person. And in our culture, we are obsessed with it everywhere. So moving on, let's get back to Ur. Ur does something which greatly displeases God. Now, we don't know what it is that specifically he did. We just know that it's called wickedness in the sight of God. And it could be that he never consummated the marriage with Tamar. We don't know. He could have just simply refused his position as the firstborn son. Whatever it was, God killed Ur in such a way that all people knew his death was related to a sin. So now Judah commands Onan to raise up a son in honor of his brother, Ur. His brother was Ur, and Onan was second in line. And so uh, following a custom of the ancient times, Judah says, Onan, you owe it to your brother to raise up a son, an heir with Tamar. And it will be your brother's son. And we actually see this also becomes a part of the Mosaic law in Deuteronomy 25. And it's also referenced in Matthew chapter 22. So this is the way that uh, things were done back then to ensure an heir and honor of the deceased husband. But Onan refuses just as his brother had done to have a son with Tamar. However, it does seem that he didn't mind having sex with Tamar. So he used her for sex. And you can read the text there and see what happened. But we, we get a little bit more insight as to Onan's sin. You see, any offspring of Ur, which is what this would be, even though Onan was biologically going to be the father, it would be considered Ur's offspring, that offspring would be entitled to a greater inheritance because Ur was the firstborn. And so we see that Onan was especially not fond of the idea that his son would be known as Ur's son and be entitled to that position that Ur would have as the firstborn. And it would not be a stretch to say that Onan wanted the place of the firstborn for himself now that his brother was out of the way. We don't know what Judah was doing, but we do know that he had sheep and sheep shearers. So he had some kind of an estate of his own. And perhaps Onan thought he could fool God. But friends, let me tell you something. God is not mocked. And Onan's fate was the same as his brother's. It is very important to note God's punishment here is because of the intention of the heart. That's what we need to see in this. God always looks upon the heart. 
Now, the physical activity is only significant in that it shows the reflection of the heart. The Bible clearly condemns adultery, homosexuality, incest, and sodomy. If things are doubtful in your mind as to what is permitted in this area, I want to encourage you to read Romans chapter 14 and 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, Colossians chapter 3, verse 17. These are the principles that you should follow. And I would add that when a husband and wife are together in a sexual way, there should never be things going on which do not lift one another up. It should be edifying. You see, your lifelong mate is God's gift to you. And sexual relations between a husband and a wife should not be humiliating, unnatural. They should not be uncomfortable. And and I have to say this because of the culture I live in today, because things are so twisted in our culture today. But listen, you don't introduce other people into your bedroom. You don't introduce other people into sexual activity between a husband and wife. Christians, keep your bedroom pure. And that's all I'm going to say about that. (laughs) So let's move on to verses 11 and verse 12. The plot thickens here because it appears that Judah did not perceive any of what was going on as God's judgment. Judah does not seem to recognize his foolishness. Instead, he tends to think that Tamar is a bad luck woman, and he sends Tamar to be with her father. Now, why would I say that? I would say that because he even says, wait until my next son grows up, Shelah, wait till he grows up, and then I'll give you to him to marry. And then it even says in the scripture, lest my third son die also. So we kind of see the superstitious attitude coming from Judah and his failure to recognize that this is going on because of God's judgment on the decisions you've made, Judah. And so by custom, this is interesting to notice too, her place is at her father-in-law's house, not her father's house. But it's almost like Judah is saying, why don't you go stay with your father and I'll let you know whenever it's time. When the third son grows up, I'll let you know. But according to the custom of the time, Tamar actually belongs with Judah at this point. So Judah promises that Shelah is going to be the husband when he's old enough and he will raise up a son for his older brother. You know, I can't help but say at this point, I feel sorry for Tamar. Poor Tamar, and I mean that. I doubt that she believed Judah at this point. And her very future, I mean her retirement plan, (laughs) depends on offspring. On top of all of this, the daughter of Shua, or Bathsheba, Judah's wife, she's dead at this point also. So think of this for just a moment. Judah has had two sons and a wife die. You think God might be communicating something here? Like Judah, this line 
is not going to have anything to do with the Savior. God wiped them out. And even though they never converted and served the one true living God, it had to be a time of sadness and tragedy in Judah's life. And all this happened in Judah's life before he was 40 years old. And think about this. In the back of his mind, he knows, I sold my brother into slavery. Well, maybe Judah didn't do it, you know, by himself, but he certainly had a role to play. And he is continuing the charade in front of Jacob, continuing to live out the lie. Friends, when you lie, when you're dishonest, you're committed to that lie. And there's a bondage that comes with that lie. And as painful as the truth might be, it isn't going to be as painful as the lie and the burden of the guilt and the shame and the continuing, like I said here, the charade that goes on. That's the real burden. So I used to say something like this. I would say, tell the truth, just go ugly early. Because <laughs> if you lie, it is going to get ugly later. Believe me, it's going to get ugly later. And so all this is happening during the 22-year period that Joseph is a slave in Egypt. And we're going to learn later that Judah's remaining son from this union became the father of what were known as the Shalanites, and we find them in Numbers chapter 26, verse 20. And most importantly, we learn that God's plan, as I've already said, God's plan for the coming Messiah did not include anyone from this union of Judah and the daughter of Shua. So they're completely taken out of the picture. And man's choice is usually never God's choice. But it does appear that God had chosen Tamar. So in verses 13 through 19, we find Judah going with his Canaanite friend to the sheep shearing. And this would be an event where there would be a feast. And word gets to Tamar that her father-in-law will be there. So notice that Tamar is wearing widow's garments. And this shows us that Tamar is still willing to fulfill her end of the contract. And she's still willing to be a wife and mother. That she's wearing the widow's garments to let everyone know that she is spoken for. And she had not forgotten about Shelah. Perhaps it has become clear that Judah was honor his promise to unite Tamar with Shelah. Wow. I feel another one coming on. What an episode. It's time for an unprecedented third James opinion in the same episode. So here is my third opinion for this lesson. And this is just simply my opinion. I believe that Tamar had been converted to Judah's God and she desired to be a part of God's plan. I believe that she had heard Judah speak of his other family members, and perhaps she even met the family members. It wouldn't be out of the realm of possibility. And she had heard them talk about the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and Jacob and God, who is great and rich in his mercy toward those whom he has called. He has great plans for Tamar, even though she does a bad thing here. God still has a plan. <laughs> 
But we should imagine trying to get a husband in a society that worships all these false gods and they're full of superstition and your husbands have all ended up dead. Now imagine people that know her and they know her story and the things that they might say about her because gossip is nothing new and they did it back then. And you might imagine somebody saying something like, you know, her first husband died. <laughs> and then did you hear what happened? Her second husband died. So on top of all that, her mother-in-law dies. I'm telling you that woman is cursed and she doesn't have any children either. Have you ever noticed there's something wrong with that girl? And you know that human nature being what it is, Again, that kind of conversation is not out of the realm of possibility. People gossiped and they were superstitious and they worshiped false gods. Poor Tamar. But she decides to take matters into her own hands. She knows that the sheep shearing event will be the right time and it'll be the right place. And since Judah was not willing to keep his deal with her, she disguises herself as a prostitute, and she knew Judah. And for that matter, Shelah would never consent to fathering a son with her. She felt that she had no choice, so she tricks Judah. And Dr. Morris puts it this way, quote, It is difficult for us to properly evaluate the moral implications of the device of Tamar. Under normal circumstances, Scripture condemns harlotry in vigorous terms. In the Mosaic Law, the penalty for adultery uh, was death by stoning. If the daughter of a priest became a harlot, she was to be put to flames. In a sense, Tamar was betrothed to Shelah, and this would make her guilty of adultery. In reality, however, it was her father-in-law himself who was preventing her from actually marrying Shelah. This circumstance, in effect, had therefore freed her from the engagement. She was, in her view, merely trying to assure the fulfillment of the essence of the marriage covenant, which Judah had made with her in the first place. End quote. Dear listener, note that Tamar was not a harlot. She was assuring her place in the covenant family from which the Messiah would come. And she so desperately wanted to be a part of it that this is what she was willing to do. Her motive was not money. Her motive was not lust or the worship of false gods. Again, God looks at the heart. And note also that the Bible does not condemn her actions here. I'm just going to leave that. It doesn't approve of her actions. But the Bible does not condemn her actions either. So Judah, on the other hand, doesn't get off so easy, as we're going to see. He will admit in verse 26 that he had done wrong. He had done wrongly. So Judah strikes a deal in the terms of the favor with Tamar, and they have sex. But it appears as though Judah left his wallet at home, so to speak. So he doesn't have anything to pay her with. So in lieu of payment, he leaves Tamar basically his identification. And don't miss this, friends. 
This is important. Judah leaves her his signet, probably the family seal. It could have even had something with a lion on it. Because after all, Jesus is called the lion of the tribe of Judah. He gives her his bracelets here in this translation. It says cords. These are bracelets. These are straps, which would hold the seal strapped to his arms or possibly around his neck, like a necklace. And then he gives her his staff, which would be a rod or a walking stick with its own particular insignia attached to the head of the walking cane. So this gives us an indication of the value or the lack thereof that Judah placed on his legacy. What are these things? Oh, they're just my signet, my seal. They're just the things that I conduct business with and I put my seal of approval on it. Or if it's a letter or something, I seal it and I I put my signet on it so people know it came from me. It's like his signature. And I don't know if you knew this or not, but, you know, they didn't exactly have photo ID back then. (laughs) But these were tokens that would identify the owner. So when the act is done, we further see Tamar's true desire. She went home and she dons her widow's attire again. And she was not found the next day. Why? Because she was not a harlot. Verses 20 through 23, we find Judah sending his friend with a kid goat for the agreed upon payment to find the harlot. However, he cannot find her and no one has seen her. Mystified, he returns back to Judah with the kid. And now why do you suppose that Judah sent his buddy to make payment? It could be personal shame at what he had done. It could be that Judah didn't want to see her again. He didn't want to risk being seen with her. In verse 21, the Hebrew word translated as prostitute actually is a term that refers to the shrine prostitutes. There were temple prostitutes in Canaanite religion, and people would pay the prostitute making an offering to the shrine or to the false god. And this was, in that culture, a respectable occupation or a respectable thing to do. It was seen as part of the Canaanite fertility religion. And here's Judah participating in that. Now, I'm not saying he bowed down to worship a false god, but his understanding was that she was a shrine prostitute. That's the word that gets used here. So maybe he didn't want anyone to know that he had quote-unquote worshipped at the altar of a false god by doing such a sexual act. And the Adulamite friend, who most likely had no problem with Canaanite culture, would be able to talk with a harlot and he would have no problem with it. So in any event, word gets back to Judah in about three months that Tamar is going to have a baby. We see this in verses 24 through Uh, 26, and Judah appears to not be happy, but perhaps he sees a way out of the covenant for his third son, Shelah. 
perhaps he is thinking he can get rid of this whole mess. After all, this Tamar has brought disgrace to his dead sons now. And uh, further than, than that, she's actually been a disgrace to his so-called quote-unquote kindness. Look what she's done. She's gone out with some nameless lover, and she was pledged to Shelah. Never mind, of course, that Judah was the one who was not going to honor the arrangement to begin with, and he's the one that went out with a harlot. He didn't seem to have a problem with that. And so Tamar is judged. She's judged very quickly by Judah that she should be burned. And this was a custom even in ungodly societies that when a woman cheated on her husband, she was to be burned. I've often wondered how this squared in their thinking of sexual activity in their false religion. But nevertheless, this is what they would have done in that culture. Shayla was technically still in line to be the next husband, which made Tamar supposedly guilty of adultery. At least outwardly, that's what it would look like. And Judah, of course, we know, was never intending to keep his end of the covenant. Evidently, Judah did not suspect that she might have been the harlot from three months earlier. So Tamar brings the evidence. She asks Judah, and I will say this in the Victorian King James English, discern, I pray thee, whose are these, the signet and bracelets and staff? Interestingly, Tamar knew enough about Judah to know that he would make the right call. He admits his wrong, and he says that Tamar has been more righteous than he. And now we near the end of the chapter, and we look at what happens in verses 27 through 30. Tamar has twins. And the first one sticks his hand out and it gets labeled with a scarlet thread. And his name is Zira, which means rising. And he brings his hand back in. And the second son is actually born first. And his name is Ferez, meaning breaking through. So you can trace this out for yourself in the gospel of Matthew. But this line will lead to King David, which leads to Jesus. Now, I want you to notice something about the providence of God. When we look at similarities between Tamar and Rebekah, we find this. First of all, they both had twins. Secondly, there is the color red associated with the firstborn. It was red pottage, and it was a red string. And third, the second born was the one who was actually chosen by God. In Rebecca's case, it was Jacob. In Tamar's case, it was Pharaoh's. The second born, that's where the Messiah would come from. So as we look at Tamar, I want us to consider three other women that are in the line of Jesus. And I want you to note their similarities. Tamar, we'll start with her. She was a non-Israelite. She was a Canaanite who pretended to be a harlot. And she came to know Yahweh, the one true living God, through someone else's witness, even though it was a poor one. <laughs> and that would be Judah that I'm referring to. The next woman I want us to consider is Rahab. She's in the line of Jesus. And she's from Jericho. And she's not Jewish. She's a Canaanite. 
who was truly a prostitute by profession. And she married Salmon after the nation of Israel took over Jericho. Then we have Ruth. I encourage you to read the book of Ruth. Here we have a non-Israelite, Moabitess. She was a Moabite who persuaded Boaz to marry her by spending the night with him as he slept intoxicated on the threshing floor. Now, read the whole book of Ruth. She slept at his feet. They did not engage in any sexual activity, but she waited for him. And Ruth is from outside the nation of Israel. And then we have Bathsheba, the fourth lady I want to look at. And she was probably a Hittite, and she became King David's wife after she had committed adultery with him. And if you know the story, you know that King David had her husband killed. And so we look at these four women, and what can we learn from them? Why in the world would God place women like this in the line of Messiah? Well, I would encourage you to look at the men that they were partnered up with. Uh, King David had his share of mistakes. Judah, we've just been through the life of Judah. He had his share of mistakes. What do we see here? Here's what we see. In the genealogy of Jesus Christ, we see a marvelous testimony of God's grace, God's truth, God's forgiveness of past sins. We see his promise of new life. And we see in each one of these women that they became a believer in the one true living God. And that means there's hope for you. We also see that God is the true liberator of women. Women, if you want to be liberated, let me tell you, put your faith and trust in the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He knows what's going on. He sees it all. He is the redeemer. He is the deliverer. He is the one. <laughs> that will make all things right. He is the judge of all. And God was the one in all these cases who delivered these women out of situations where there was misunderstanding and there was mistreatment. And as we close out this episode, remember a few things. When you've done something wrong, moving to the next town is not going to help you get away from the guilt and the shame of what you did. It did not work for Judah, and it will not work for you. There's only one way that you're going to get rid of the guilt and the shame, and that is throw yourself at the feet of the Savior. And for the believer and non-believer alike, be careful in the decisions that you make. Remember that sin always leads to death. Look at Ur, Onan, and their mother. Also, fulfill the things you promised you would do. Be a man or woman of your word. Judah was not a man of his word in this case, but Tamar was a woman of her word. Lastly, remember that God uses less than perfect people. If you think you've gone too far, if you think that you cannot be forgiven, friends, that is a lie. Why do you think the lives of these people are recorded in Scripture and it's there so openly for the world to see? God is communicating 
He is a God of forgiveness. He is a God who has a plan and the plan will move forward. You can come to him. Don't think that you've gone too far. Look at the lives of these people that we've been studying. If God can use and save them for his glory, he can do the same for you. for listening to the forge podcast and don't forget to leave a review with comments let me hear from you leave a voice message through the link i hope and pray that you find ways to apply the truths of god's word in daily living remember dear christian you are forgiven it is by grace that you've been saved through faith may you grow in christ in the study of the bible and truly overcome wounds that were caused by sinful choices and actions of the past. I also pray that you are always reforming, seeking to glorify God in all that you say and do. Remember to be grateful to God for what he is working out, not only in you, but in all his creation as well. And lastly, be encouraged. Encouraged to serve God and others as you grow in him.